What's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in to the Athletic Lab Audio Inventory. Bob's in town. As I said before, we do have a wealth of individuals here like Pete, like Bob in this area that, that we can draw upon. It is a hot hotbed, I think, for this field. So we're lucky to have Bob in to, to kind of come and chat. I've known Bob for about uh, maybe four years. We worked very briefly together at NC State. Um, I think one thing, a couple things you'll note about him. One, like Pete, he's very passionate about the field and, and does things right. He's a nuts and bolts guy. We talk about doing the fundamentals well here and you don't even need to move beyond fundamentals or nuts and bolts until you have perfected that. And there's no better guy that you'll ever find than, than Bob about that. Um, he was a speaker at our very first HPAD. Uh, so some of you guys came to HPAD this past year. Uh, Bob was our, one of the first guys I called for uh, the first version of HPAD. Um, and part of it was because we had some bringing in some guys that were doing sports science, sports science type stuff, and I needed to make sure that we never got away from the the meat and potatoes type stuff because that's where it starts. So Bob's going to talk about uh, some things I think he's written about recently. You'll find that uh, a lot of what he's going to say is very similar to our philosophy, but as is the case with uh, Pete or anyone else we bring in, we're not necessarily saying that uh, we're exactly the same. That's uh, we are trying to expose you to different and uh, open, uh, keep your mind open to different things. So I think what Bob will talk about today is uh, some things that in many circles is, are all, almost heretical. Um, but I think Bob gives a very compelling case for what he's going to talk about. Thanks for coming in, Bob. Yeah, thank you. Um, so it's really nothing special. I think, I think what I'd like to make this is, is as giant a roundtable as we can and everybody be involved because if you're not and you have questions you're making a mistake by not bringing them up um, I think what happens is when you have good discourse about methods and principles it gives you a chance to end up knowing maybe not necessarily what the truth is but you get a little more conclusive on what you think will work the best because there's all kinds of avenues out there that you can go through depending on your facilities, your knowledge level, how many staff, how many kids, how much time, all these things depend on a program, So, which is why you really can't look at something on paper or on video and say, oh, I would never do that, you know, or I would change that into something else, when really you see it's not even a snapshot. You don't know what's happened that day, that month, two months before that, a year before that, so it's very difficult to comment on anybody's training until they comment on it. You know, that's that's the piece. Um, I think what Mike is talking about and what we and what kind of raised some hackles and I was surprised to a certain degree about it, only that it was a more emotional issue than I thought it would be, and that was do you catch the power clean or not? Or is the power clean, the catch so important, versus pulling derivatives, which would be anything from moment of separation off the ground where the bar's only that far off the ground, all the way to fully extended pulling, right? Um, and so I haven't, I haven't caught bars in a long time, not as an imposed part of what I do, but if somebody's gonna catch it, we will. Actually, um, the step I do go to is I'll skip right from the pull and go right to the snatch. I think the snatch is better than the clean. It's more powerful than the clean. 
So, I mean, again, it, it talks about, I think what this t topic does speak to is what, what is your intent? I've had a couple of presentations late at the NSCA and some other places where one of my slides was intent. Um, I think we get lost in programming and lose the intent, which sounds a little, not counterintuitive, but just counterproductive. It is. You start writing programs, you start off, okay, what's my lifting, you know, what's my first platform exercise, then I move down here, you know, so I got the power, now lower body, upper body, what about the shoulder complex, and the, you know, so you, you just make this checklist, and in the end, you may not be covering your own intent. You may not doing, you may not be doing exactly what you want to do. And so part of this, this discussion that I had through this article by simplyfaster.com, which has tremendous articles on there, tremendous. Another one came out today that I just put on individualization. But um, it came up to much more emotional responses than I thought. Very little science with a few of the responses that I had. It was just like, well, what are you talking about? You know, it was like Mike was saying, we've done these forever. You know, I mean, they work. Of course they work. That's why we're doing them. And you say, was well, it really? <laughs> I mean, do we really know that? Because some of the great work that was done that was done in the early 80s. And then there was very, not a whole lot of work that you could do on it because the technology wasn't there. Now the technology is, I mean, you can do anything you want now, really. And uh, some of you can do with your phone. But... Um, the question is, why are you doing the power clean, right? So not just that, it becomes a microcosm of your own program. Your own program is, why am I squatting? Why am I doing overhead presses? Why do I do bicep curls, right? There's reasons why you do that. So for instance, if I was training, and I have, if I was training females, and uh, let's say we were doing Volleyball and softball, throwing, overhead stuff, right? I definitely include bicep curls in there, definitely. As heavy and as hard as we can. Is it sport specific? I would argue yes, because you need balance in the shoulder. Good balance in the shoulder comes from the rotator cuff and the lats and everything in there. Pulling is important. The limiting piece in pulling is bicep strength. And females in general, body strength lacks, which is why I put bicep curls in there to get to the lats, to get to the overhead component of those sports. See, so when you say bicep curls, well, you know, who does that anymore, right? Well, if you do put it in there, you better figure out why. I think that's a pretty solid theory. You know, so at some point, you've got to be able to, you know, straight, which is why I put a lot of tricep exercises in too, for pressing exercises, female upper body strength, we know about that, right? With the clavicles are shorter. So you gotta call on everything else you can get in there. So every little every little bit helps. Every little bit helps. So it kind of tells you, you know, explain what you're talking, what's your intent. So so the whole clean thing was in, in, in simple form, why are you doing the power clean? Because it produces power. Well, now we know through couple of places, and the two guys I've really relied upon, you probably saw their names in there, Tim Suckamel and Paul Comfort, who we just met at Powerlift for three days last week. Uh, flew Paul in from Manchester, England, and, and we brainstormed about equipment and training and some ideas on research that we we're going to support and be involved with. Um, so now we know that based on their research, the power clean of, of the 
the clean pulling derivatives, not the snatch, because we know the snatch is more powerful than the clean. But the clean pulling derivatives, the power clean itself is the least powerful exercise of those derivatives. So if you're telling me I do power cleans because it's more powerful, I'm saying that's not true. We know that now. I mean, if we didn't know it before, then okay, but now we know it's not. So again, I ask, why are you doing those? And they got to be pretty emotional. The answers were, well, because, you know, I believe this, I believe that. And so, you know, this is what I like about this kind of group right here. And I know Mike's, Mike's thought process is that way. Smart people think that way, is um, why are you doing it? Explain it. And now that you have that information, what are you going to do next, right? So primarily, I'm, I'm alluding to the fact that this is a good time, if there's any time in strength and conditioning and sports science in general, where you don't have to feel anything. You don't have to believe anything. The research is out there now. The data's right there. You know, it's not like somebody says, well, you know, that's your opinion. No, that's the data. That's, that's different. You, now, you can... Uh, Dr. Jose Antonio told me one time, who's the president and founder of the ISSN, International Society of Sports Nutrition, fabulous place to get information, probably the best place on the science of sports nutrition. He, he, we were talking about one topic, and his response was, you can't have your own science. And so that's true. You can't have your own science. You can't just make stuff up, right? Uh, now, whether it fits or not in your program is another story. So that, that's a whole other avenue. You know, I don't have bumpers. Okay. Or I don't... You know, whatever it might be, I don't have time. It could be any number of things that prohibits you from doing something that truly is founded in the science, but just doesn't fit for some way or another. But this pulling derivative thing is a pretty hot topic, because when you think about it, how long have we been doing power cleans now, right? I mean, forever, it seems like. And it was the, you know, power clean. You know, they should have called it the duh exercise, right, as far as we knew years ago. But now we know it's not quite as powerful as you think. So now the question is, now what do we do next? And now our next project that we're trying to do is, we hear a lot of from, from not just football people, but in general, what about the bracing? What about the bracing part? So we know the load absorption is the same or better in a pull. So you know in a pull where you, where you, can, you can come off the ground or any way you want, get here and you catch it here, right? Well, that right there is the same as that right there with the load absorption. So if we're not talking about here, we're talking about the work at the hip, the ankle, and the knee is the same or greater. Because in the pool, you can go 100% plus. You can go up to 140%. So you can go all, all over the force velocity curve. In the power clean, you can only clean 100%. That's as far as you can go. In the pools, you can go 100 to 140. There's been some studies on that. So I can, I can, I can produce more force absorption on a, on a high pull if I want. So that's out of the question now. The question is, what about bracing? What about actually grabbing the bar, catching here and having all this happening? Well, we haven't been able to really get into that yet, but that's the next thing. So think about this for a second now. And, and yeah, so just think about this. So if you do the bracing, right, and we go ahead and put EMGs here and on the back, we know what happens there, but we're gonna do them both. If we find out that the bracing is the same or less, than a front squat, because remember now, you can only clean so much weight. My guess is, if you're trained right, and you should be able to, to squat more weight than you can clean, right? Does everybody, okay, so if you can, you can handle more load. My guess is that the bracing part of the squat is far more than the clean itself. 
And so if we find out that to be true, when somebody says, well, I do it for the bracing, so now it's not the power, now it's not bracing, but you're still doing them, then you gotta, then the question says, okay, so exactly why are you doing it then? So are you doing it for you? Or are you doing it for the kids? Because that's, we're not here for us, right? So that, you know, that, that's kind of a, that's a pretty wide ranging effect that this could have if we find out these things, which is what's great about science, you know? What works and what doesn't work. We've been finding things all along about two-legged, one-legged stuff and hopping and bounding and lots of other things that you know we've been able to dispel some myths. So this, this power clean thing is could be a pretty far-reaching thing, especially for an exercise that's been around, you know, at least the 35 years I've been coaching. I mean, we were we were doing that right off the bat with with kids bringing them in there because we know about what that lift does. So it's much more than a um, it's much more than an emotional issue, but then again, you gotta think about that a little bit. Now, why is it an emotional issue? Like, there shouldn't be any real emotion that goes along with training. I mean, other than, other than your passion to get your philosophy across, which is fine, but then it just becomes a battle of supporting information, supporting information, right? That's what it is, and that's, what's, and that's all good like that, right? Because any good scientist will tell you that nothing's conclusive, because there's, there's plenty of perhaps perhapses in there, there's plenty of maybes in there, and that's, that's what they'll tell you. I mean, any good scientist will tell you it's not black or white, but it will get you closer to certainty when you look at entire, entire aspects of what you're doing. You know, so for instance, when we talk about the clean, it could be that you say, I do that we know what that does, but we also do a lot of bounding, we do a lot of box jumps, we do some weighted discs, we do uh, jump squats, and you say, okay, so maybe that ends up being more powerful than another program that only does pulls, because they don't do enough. So this thing really is far-reaching um, when you think about it. And that's what a great place like this is, because you have, I mean, look how many people are here that you guys can discuss and, and bring up your own thoughts amongst each other, and really have great thoughts about I mean, what an atmosphere this should be to have this many folks in one room talking about training all the time. And there is, I mean, there is no other time where the science is being more loud than ever in the past. Before, it used to be just in the scientific community, but now strength coaches are watching. I mean, we have, we have tracking, we have jump mats, we have all kinds of stuff that's in the weight room now. Those things were always in the lab. They were never in the weight room. And now we have immediate feedback. And unlike some other folks that are my age, I'll be 60 here in a month or two, I don't believe in, you know, well, I've been doing it so long, I don't need that stuff. I say, oh, you gotta be kidding me. Like, I think I'm pretty good at what I do, and I, I need it. I can't tell if somebody has more left leg force development than the right leg in a vertical jump. How the hell can you see that? You know, but that's information that you need, and if you have that information, it's almost like that, that few good men quote, right? You know, you have the luxury of not knowing what I know. Well, once you know, you can't just miss it. You gotta, you gotta act on it. That's, that's the virtue. We wanna do that. We wanna seek more information, right? Any comments up to that point? Yes, sir. So do you say the uh, power clean doesn't have any, the catch doesn't have any benefits? No, I didn't say that at all. So no. why would you not do it? Well, if I thought something was better, I would do that, right? Yeah. but is. I mean, if there's additional benefits to the catch, isn't there getting more out of an exercise? 
Okay, so then, so you're, you're doing exactly what we talked about. So are you saying you're power cleaning for the catch? I'm not saying I'm power cleaning for the catch, but if it has additional benefits, I wouldn't. What are they? I mean, I'm asking you, I don't <laughs> exactly explain. Well, yeah, so of course, you, you know. ECC contraction. Huh? ECC contraction, maybe. Stability of the body awareness variation, but is always good to include. Is there any other exercise you can do that? So the whole idea is you want to get the most amount of results with the least amount of work. So back in, back in oh, I mean, it was a couple of years ago, the guy who, who, who set the seminal research on those exercises alone, we talked, I asked him, I said, is there any benefit in the power cleaning eccentric work on that? He said, not as long as you have a squat program. No, I don't see any extra benefit in that. So I'm gonna go with him. <laughs> he's the man. So I'm gonna I would say. only limit power cleaning if the flexibility or mobility is the issue. Otherwise, I, I think that we have a package with power cleaning because we don't need to add anything else. We we can do squats and we need to do let's say plyometrics to incorporate both. And this one, we can do just power cleaning and have it both at the same time. So here's what's interesting. You said I think this isn't a, this isn't any time to think. What is your supporting information for that? For what? for that the power cleans the full package. Uh, my conclusion, like your conclusions, because yours- They're not my conclusion, they're science. I'm not, I'm not aware of any study that show that uh, power clean is, that tested exclusively power clean versus clean, high clean pool. Well, I can show you half a dozen. You my guess. Well, I'm, I'm, you be my guest. I already know. I already have. I don't have to do your research. You have to do your research. Yeah, I did. I did it one more. Okay, so I, I was just here with the two guys that wrote the research just three days ago. Yeah, I'm familiar with the Paul Comfort. Okay. Well, okay. Well, that's fine, but that doesn't mean his numbers or anything are different. So what I'm saying to you, you're going to dismiss what they're telling you. No, I'm not. I'm just asking, can you uh, uh, introduce us to that research? Can you explain what they did and what they found? Well, yeah, I mean, if you're looking for total power output, peak yeah. power output, there's more power in high pulling the bar I than agree. catching it. I agree. Okay, so if you're telling me you're doing the clean for power, I'm saying, but there's a more powerful exercise, why would you do something less? Well, you said the snatch was more powerful than the clean pull, so why would you do that? Well, it is, but it's an advanced exercise. it's a lighter exercise. And you can't, and with the snatch, you can't go over a full range of force velocity on that. You can only snatch up to 100. Right, I mean, you can only snatch what you snatch. Right. And the snatch, keep in mind too now, here's the other thing about velocity-based training, which is a problem. It's important, but when you're doing velocity-based training, you're lifting lighter weights. When you're lifting lighter weights, you're losing strength. When you lose strength, you lose power. So in the outcome is, if you get caught up in velocity-based training too much, you're probably gonna reduce your power when you think you're increasing it. So you've gotta keep feeding strength in there somehow. So you can't just stick on speed all the time. And, re and remember too, if your strength is not built enough, then you haven't tapped your full total potential to create power through strength, which is right, that whole that whole base building part of it, right? When you have younger athletes, you want to get them as strong as you can because that's the easiest time to create power because all you have to do is get them strong. So unlike some of the athletes that Mike and I have worked with, Mike more than I have, in a track and field setting, when they get up there pretty fast and jumping pretty fast, you've got to be really creative 
it becomes a, a more of a nervous system thing than just squatting more weight and cleaning more weight. You got to be really, really creative because their system now is advanced. So when you have somebody who needs to get on strength, you need to make sure you do that as much as you can because that's the easiest way to make them, I mean, essentially run fast and jump high at that time, right? But when you think about the total program now, think about it, you can change any speed you want with the pull because you can go all height. You can't do that with a clean. Like you can't go light on a clean and go like this, right? That doesn't do any good. But you can go all the way from here to here to here to here to here if you want. With a clean, you can't do that. So you can work over a wider range to create more power. And the clean will feed everything else that you want to feed, right? So because there's some weight there. So you can have, you can even, you can even section it off into certain areas where you can say, okay, we're going to go clean pool, but we're, you know, we're going to go for you know, six week block and our pull is gonna be here. So it's gotta be individualized, right? So in other words, it's gotta be based on body height. So in, in Garhammer's work early on, he was saying that in, the, in Olympic weightlifters, who are masterful now, right? These guys are pulling ounce for ounce, pound for pound, every inch they can possibly do, which is not our population. We don't, we don't I'll tell you, we don't train anybody who does that, unless they're Olympic lifters because they're not lifters. They don't know how to match that. You're gonna see them pull it as high as they can until they can get underneath it. It just so happens in Olympic lifters, they are pulling as high as they can just to get underneath it, right? Um, I forgot my train of thought there, but anyway, so the whole idea is that, that full range of motion that you can go through for different speeds. Oh, I know what it was, the strength part. So if you want to go strength, you'd say, we're just gonna go here. So you'll fix, you know, whatever your height is, whatever your height is, and you'll go through your, where you still get some pop with heavier weights. Then the next phase would be up in here, maybe. Faster, lighter, I mean, you can go over a whole range. And, and you can, I did, <coughs> I tested the clean pull, and we went sternum height. So if the bar's fixed in the snatch, my theory, Bar's fixing the snatch, the snatch at two-thirds height. That means it's overhead at two-thirds, right? So I'm saying, we're, let's fix that up a little bit higher. I don't want just to get, I don't need, I don't need any, I frankly don't understand why athletes are squat cleaning anyway. You should squat and you should clean. Those are two focuses. They're not lifters. They're, we're not doing it enough to make that important. Especially, well, I, competed, uh, I competed for a little while in Olympic weightlifting. I know Mike has. Like, you, you know how much time it takes just to get the timing involved with that, right? Um, it, so the whole piece of that is, I guess, I guess what I'm referring to more than anything, I'm forgetting my thought, but is that you, um, you have this full range you can work over over time. And you can test your heights. So anyway, you get your, your max clean pull, whatever that is. You have to figure out what that is for your whole population if you're going to come up with any idea. For us, it was sternum height. So you figure, okay, that's better here. Because, because remember now, the snatch, in both the snatch and the clean, the work is done once the bar reaches waist height. The force on the bar is zero. Everything else is just flying. So even if, you, even if you were snatching or cleaning, you could pause it. Well, there's no reason to catch it at all then. If we're, if we're done right here, and we're trying to produce power, why would we keep going? There'd really be no reason to keep going. 
which I could, I could see, you know, if somebody said, well, that's all I do, I'd say, well, okay, I can see that. You know, if you're trying to go, if you're trying to create power, then I can see why you would do that. Did you have a question? Yeah. Uh, I read your article, Simply Fast, about really about, about that. So mm -hmm. uh, it, you said at one point that uh, you can maintain velocity and technique while lifting very high loads, mm -hmm. just with the with the lower height of the pool. Mm -hmm. So you really think that's possible? Well, I know because it's if, if it's really very high load. Well, so if it's higher than velocity and just the lower height. Yeah, I got the measurements. I got the so think about it this way. So if your if your max is here, right? Okay. All right. All I'm doing is I'm saying if you go if you go from here to here, you'll get increase you'll get an increase in power right off the bat, and it'll be very very little speed drop. I mean, it will be insignificant. It's not like it. So if you're expecting if you're expecting your max to be here, pulling the ball here in the same speed, you won't get that. No, I mean, you know, but if you can, you know, like, and we're talking about small <laughs> tweaks, right? We're always talking about small tweaks. If you can get that, you got it made. And that's where you get that, that's where you can pick, with a clean pull, you can pick force, you can pick velocity, you can pick this, you can pick that, you can pick one or the other. So like in season, for example, what I did was, I, I really, I think velocity-based training really is an in-season thing. I don't know why you'd want to use it outside of it. First of all, when, you, when you're going through a strength phase, there's really no use for it anyway because time is not significant in strength at all. You just got to do it in simple terms, non-scientific terms. But when you're, when you're doing your, your speed and power stuff, you want to jump in there and, 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 and grab it and document it all the time so you have it over the course of time. Then we took, when we did our maxes, I ended up making sure that we plotted every set of the max whenever we could. 70, 80, 90, 95, and whatever happened after that. And now I had a whole profile. You know, your typical profile would be speed, right? It should look something like that. At some point down here, it gets a little murky, but in the middle is where the exciting stuff is. That's where you're going to find peak speed and peak power. They may not be the same thing. I think we all know that, right? The heaviest weight doesn't produce the weight, the most power. And the fastest speed doesn't produce the most power either, but that combination. So I took that into the end season. So I figure like if we want power then, and, we're, and we've got our strength, because it's going to be hard to, you know, if you, if you read what I said on uh, in season strength training, I just wrote a couple weeks ago. Strength is difficult in season. So first of all, let's just forget the idea of maintaining strength, because it doesn't happen. The only time it does happen is when you have, and I've seen it, and it also means speed and jump too, is when you have young athletes, during, during their season, they should be getting faster and stronger and jumping higher. I've got that data too on a few freshmen that I've got. That's normal though, you should see that. Typically, older athletes, they're, they're tapped out, so the game is taking them down a little bit. There's not gonna be any maintenance, but when you talk about maintenance programs and you look at volumes that are really high or you look at intensities that are really low, that doesn't make any sense either. So you're saying, well, I'm doing a maintenance program. So my, my thought would be, well, I'm looking at the volumes, I'm looking at the percentages. If you can't gain strength at those percentages, how are you going to maintain strength at those percentages, right? So what I wanted to do was during that season with you know it being the season in general, I wanna say, okay, so I wanna pick a day where I get the max power output because we want to keep that up. I'll feed the strength piece of that through my squatting, 
because we, we got up about, we got to 90% about one time every four weeks. I made sure it was heavy enough. That was only singles now, but it was heavy. So we maintained some strength piece there so that the speed of that bar and everything else is still happening. And then there was days where I did, like I told you, like we'd have uh, something outside of the something outside of the speed and make it more load. So it's a little bit heavier, but but not demonstrably slow where the bar is just, you know, right? You, like you wouldn't be able to tell if you looked at it, aside from the height of the pool. But the speed of it would be quick, much like that right there is quick, right? But it's so small that we're not getting anything out of it. And then the other part I would do, okay, now we're gonna pick a day where we'll go 70%, where I know the speed's gonna be heavier, but the power output's gonna be low because the weight's not very heavy but it's lighter and quicker, and now we're gonna get something up in here, right? So that's where I think velocity-based training has its best benefit. I don't know, I just don't know why you look at it any other way. If you're relying on that, if you're gonna be relying on velocity, you're gonna get your feelings hurt, because it's, it, all of a sudden you think you're getting faster and you start adjusting the weights for the speed, and I think if you went back over time, you'd notice that to get that speed you wanted, you have to keep taking weight off as time went on, right? Because you're not feeding not feeding the heavy part of it that you need. Plus from an injury standpoint too, so it's not all, it's not all lifting science. See, from an injury standpoint, I don't know anybody, Pete, you, you can talk to this, I don't know anybody who's pulling up or becoming injured at lower levels of, of muscular contraction. You know, like you're not gonna be going 70% and probably pull the hamstring. When you go full speed, whether it's a one second or 20 seconds, whatever a sprint is, that's when you got problems, right? Because you're at the high end. So the one thing that heavyweights do in season is they get your muscles to feel what tension is and tension right away. So in some of those programs where they say, well, we do five sets of eight, but we go as heavy as we can. I say, okay, that seems like a lot of volume to me. I wouldn't go any higher than that. But my, my point is in athletics, all of us have done a set of eight on something, right? Is the first one hard in a set of eight? No. Second one? No. Third, fourth, fifth, maybe. Six starts getting harder. Seven. And fortunately in athletics, we don't get five warm-ups before we got to go do something, right? Well, I'm in the outfield in the seventh inning, and I haven't moved in a game that's a pitcher's game, so nothing much going on. I've jogged out to my position. It's 0-0, zero, zero, and all of a sudden the ball's in the gap. I don't, I don't get to go like this. He <laughs> warms up to go in full sprint to the gap. I got to go now. And the only thing that teaches that is heavy weights. It's the only time you can feel that. You gotta get ready now, you don't get that warm up piece. That's the other, that's the thing I, I, in baseball in particular, I think injury comes out of a lack of strength for sure there. It certainly can't be repetition. Like in hockey, it can't be repetition. You're skating every day, right? You gotta be fit enough to skate. So I don't think it's that. Anyway. Sir? What about with like intent for your athletes like the rep? So, is there, you think there's any potential benefit, like subconsciously of knowing I have to get this bar to my shoulders, maybe get a little more maximal intent on an athlete? That's a good point. That's a good point. Here's a, that's our next study, um, which would be interesting for you to look at. I, I'm convinced, my own opinion, I'm no science, just my visual, and I think, uh, and I'll see if Mike can concur on this, maybe not. But I'm convinced that outside of the weightlifting population, right, that when you're gonna clean a bar, you're gonna slow down so you can get underneath it. All right, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna slow the bar purposely down so you can to, to go get it. Because it's not max weight, 
it's not a max. It's not a weight that you can't get underneath. Otherwise, it would be that way. You know, I mean, it'd be so quick. So I think that they slow down. So what we're going to do is we're going to take full cleans, hand cleans, same weight, hang pulls, pulls from the ground, and see where the velocity zones are and see where they end up. My contention is that if you have to clean a weight, there's something about it. And, and sometimes it even happens with lifters. Like you'll see sometimes, you have to watch them enough, but you'll see sometimes when they'll go to, to clean a bar, snatch it, and you can tell they didn't commit to the bar, right? They didn't commit to get underneath it or commit to drop because you just, somewhere in there you go, no way. <laughs> you know, I mean, you kind of, oh, okay, okay, sorry. <laughs> but you know you just can't get underneath it. Um, and so that part, that whole intentional thing, I, I think that, I think that's a knock on the clean. You know, like that you, you, you slow it down. Again, if you're gonna say, hey, I'm doing this to get, you know, power, well, if, you're, if there's no exercise that you purposely slow a bar down, I mean, unless, well, typically no. If you're, if you're bench pressing, which is why you say, you know, we do a bench press, we're going as fast as we can, we're gonna do power bench presses, I say, and all you should say, well, you don't, because the zone for power is about that big, because you have D-cell, D-cell, everything, in, you know, so it's really not a full thing unless you can get that, that kind of push that, you know, normally you get. So, I, th I think that happens. I definitely think that happens. Have you ever used velocity-based training tools like you can wear a push band in max strength to regulate loads? So like this set, we want to be an average of 0.3 meters per second. That slow speed would show up at a high percentage squat um, in the way that you would maybe say, all right, this kid's fatigued, we're gonna go a little bit lighter. That kid have a great day, we're gonna go a little heavier percentage. Have you ever used the speed from those measurements to adjust in a max strength phase? Well, no, I mean, clearly you could, you could. But remember, in a strength phase, you know, in any, well, I shouldn't say any phase. Strength phase, for sure, you're gonna have fatigue. There's gonna be some fatigue in there, either neural or otherwise. Shouldn't be muscular, because there shouldn't be much volume in there if you're doing strength work. But here's the key, I, I don't mind if somebody's coming out of a squat like this. Sometimes, that has to happen. If that shows up and say, oh, we need to lighten it up, so, so we need to de-emphasize strength, because in strength, it's just the load, period. The speed is, I got, you know, I mean, it's good to have the numbers. I know we've had numbers on strength and say, Here, here's what happens. Okay, that's good, but I'm not gonna stop that kid from feeling that, because that goes to the next workout and it comes from the one before that. Uh, I, I don't know that I would do that. I mean, I, but I think what you would do is, if you have a big week coming up and that, 85 looks hard, you know, like th the third rep on an 85% is hot, tough, you'd say, okay, we're in trouble a little bit. We need to figure that out. But I don't think you'd need... I, I, was, I was thinking less of um, the kids working hard, working back off, or maybe more of, all right, we're trying to get that grinding feeling. So we're big recruitment there, but then the kids moving it too fast. All right, we're going to go ahead in the percentage we have said to get yeah. in there. Would you ever use it like, in that kind of context? I'm just curious if you had or... I, I know I've not used it, but I don't, I, don't know that it, I don't know that the speed during the strength phase is that critical where I couldn't see it. Mm. I, don't, I think you could probably see it. I don't well, you give yourself a little credit. Anybody in here should have the ability to say, I know what he needs to do. He ain't going to get that. You know, like, you just make your... You're talking about auto-regulating a little bit? Or? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. You know, auto-regulating, that's another term that's been fancy that probably Pete made up. He's way smarter than me. <laughs> but uh, so here, here's my take on auto-regulation. That, that's called modifying workouts to me. I, I don't, it's, a, it's a pretty cool term, and I, but I'm not that smart. 
to say, well, I'm an odd regulator. I don't know. I write workouts and I modify them when I see them. I don't, you know. But here, here's what I do say. If you're auto-regulating your workouts too many times, you have a bad program. You, you shouldn't be auto-regulating all the time. There's no way. If you write it out the right way, and I'm not saying the first time you write programs, it's a, it's a gold medal winner right away. I'm, you know, I'm telling you 30 years later, I can get to the point where I don't have to do that all the time. Sometimes it happens. Most of the time, for me, it doesn't happen through the training. It happens as a result of practice, sleep, food, something else. But I'm pretty... I'm pretty good at getting things in order where things happen the way they're supposed to. Am I against auto-regulation? Well, no, that means I'm against designing programs and coaching. But if you're doing that a lot, that means you need to go back and review your program because something's wrong in there. It shouldn't be that way because then it just becomes, it becomes, let's, let's just show up and work out and if that looks too heavy, I change it. If it's too high, I change it. You know, it should be something like that. Yes, I agree with you for strength. It's, uh, uh, it, it's only the lower period, but uh, related to the Matt's question about mm -hmm. the VPT, uh, mm -hmm. if you're familiar with the Mladen uh, Jovanovic and Flamen's work back in 2014 when they did a lot of, uh, when they uh, invented actually that low velocity profile uh, profiling of the players or the athletes, mm -hmm. and they showed that the strength can fluctuate uh, as much as 80% up and down each day, no matter what. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what's your opinion about that? I mean, that's, that could be a reason why should we use the VBT in training regardless, because it will save us a time, to, you know, not to put an athlete on certain weight and wait for him to make some uh, weird face to know that you know, he is fatigued or someone else because we will know that he is ready for a certain amount of weight because at one point some weight can be, some load can be for him 90% but the, for the next day it can be 70%, you know, what yep. you originally planned for him yep. that day. So what's your opinion of that? Well, I mean, it certainly doesn't stop you from monitoring it. I mean, if, if you have it available, I don't know why you wouldn't do it, right? Just, just for just plain data, just to put it out there. But I... Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I, I've never ran, I've not ran into the problem where I just see 15 or 20 people that's just all up and down, like, you know, we're all at 90% today and everybody looks different. I've, I've not seen that. Now, can strength be different? Yeah, years ago, we used to measure strength as a form of everything's fine, right? But we know that's not true anymore. We used to think, when somebody would say, hey, coach, I think so-and-so looks slow. You'd say, well, you know, strength levels are up, and that used to be, oh, okay. Well, now we know those two don't match. You know, now we know that you can still, you can still have lower strength and not be right, right? Um, which is why the strength is important in season. And now that we can monitor everything. I would, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that that's not what happened. But I would be curious as to the number of incidences of that every week. That that that's different. You know, was that with rugby players? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, individually, you'd have to take each position, which I'm sure you probably did, and said, okay, here's your profile, here's your yeah, they yeah, did that. profile, profile. If he's saying he had influxes of different strength throughout the, you know, enough, enough incidences of that, which I don't think he did, and I only say that because I think he's a fairly experienced guy, that, uh, I think you'd be alarmed. I'd be alarmed. I'd be, I, first thing I would say, because the one thing that we do have is we know what our training looks like in the weight room, right? Because it's pretty, it's pretty cut and clear. What we don't know what's cut and clear is what's happening on the field. 
I mean, they do whatever, right? They say, okay, our, our, you know, we know, like, and we look at athlete tracking, we know the coaches say, oh, we're going to go easy today. And you find out that your normal player load's doubled. Well, now what do you do? So now you got to go back in the weight room, figure out how to fix that. Because like you said, now that, now that you know that, I got to change that because you know it's not going to be right the next day, right? So yeah. it's kind of your idea to figure that out. But I wouldn't discount the fluctuation in strength. I would say to that, that two things. One, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, two, if there's a big variance and happens a lot, that's a problem. That shouldn't occur. That shouldn't occur. I mean, if he's had that, seen that over the, the, code, the, the spectrum, I'm not saying it's never happened to me. I mean, of course not. Because like I said, there's some things none of us can control. At the pro level, you have all the things we talked about, including getting a fight with your significant other at home, your son had measles the night, you're up all night, your daughter, you know, I mean, there's lots of things. The guy comes in, and, and, and that's why you read in the paper, so-and-so pulls a hamstring. Like, oh, did they, are they conditioned enough? Like, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. I mean, who knows? They could have been... They could have went to the mall all day because their daughter needed to dress and the wife was busy and the guy went out and was at the mall walking around all day and all of a sudden that's part of it. Uh, but that, that strength piece, I, I wouldn't discount the fact that there is a lot of variation, partly because you're not, we don't have control over the practices even though they say, oh, oh here's our, you know, I mean, we see this all the time, right? Here's the periodization model through athlete tracking, player loads, like coaches look at that and if when they're on the field, it's whatever they want to do. You know, they like to stay on it a little bit, but some, and then now you know that's going to affect you. Yeah, uh, sure. uh, related to that, what you said, uh, they also uh, provided us with the information that you can use that low velocity profile if you had a, you had two guys that have the same 1RM okay. uh, in squat, let's okay. say. But uh, like you give an example and simply faster with the guys that are limited by mobility, right. one can catch it, one can't. Correct. Okay, and they produce the same amount of power, okay. regardless. Yes. So we have, let's say, two guys uh, benching 150 kilos. Okay. But, and they can uh, both do that, but there's a different way in terms of velocity how they get to that point. Yep. One guy is faster all the way down, but as the weight gets up, he got slower. Mm -hmm. And he's and uh, maybe he's at 150, but our guys is what uh, he is at 160. So he's Correct. stronger, but he's way slower on the way down, mm -hmm. on the way up of the weight. Mm -hmm. So that means that this guy that is faster on the lower weight, he has a pretty much good power. I mean, he is powerful, but he's not strong enough. His strength is yeah. a limiting factor. Yeah. So would you consider that as a kind of uh, well, I think you can, I think all of us consider it automatically, right? So how many times we've, football's a perfect example, because it used to be, you know, 225, how many times you could do it, right? So you would do 225 on the bench press, you'd have guys who, who would do 15, and then the guy that would do 10, but the guy that did 10 bench press more max than the guy that's 15. So, you know, you, yeah, you have to be, and that's part of the individualized pearl side. You have to, I, I don't know that you would look at the, I think you're looking at the velocity profile in a backdoor manner. I think you'd already know that this guy's got a good low gear and this guy's got a good high gear. And so you would program them accordingly, I think. But I don't know that you need to take a profile on that. I think that would tell you the profile if you knew something about velocity of lifts over the course of the curve. I don't know that you'd have to use the curve itself. I think you could just program off it because now you know those differences, right? 
But all that, all that data, I'm not saying not take the data, because you know, it's one of those things where all the data is important, but not all of it's useful, right? So you take it and kind of figure out where that's gonna fit in your, in your model. Um, and you know, where you see that happen is with maxes, more, more important, like you said, both guys are, are benching 150, and you go to an 80% week where maybe early in the year you're doing sets of five, that'll hit you right off the bat. I mean, and it'll, and it'll be a pattern for that one player who can't rep, right? And so you change, you know, sometimes it's as simple as saying, well, I need you at 80% for now, right? So instead of doing three sets of five, I just flip it to five sets of three. Change the rest. You get, now everybody gets what they want. But still yet, I still believe, even, even under those circumstances, except for repetition zones, that 80% is the same for all of us in this room. We're all gonna get the same effect from it. Because it's, it's, uh, it's relative now. So that's why I can take a team and say, hey, our, this is an 80% week this week because of you know, whatever we wanna do later. But then when I dive into it, you're going five sets of three, you're going three sets of five. Because I know your profiles that way. And it makes it, it makes it a little bit easier when you got the velocities and you can take a look at them a little bit. But some guys won't go as fast as they can anyway when they bench. And strength exercises in general, it's pretty tough to have somebody go fast when you're not usually used to doing that. Just like it would be pretty tough to have somebody, you know, somebody like Mike who's advanced in living say, okay, Mike, I want you to take, you know, 75, 80%, but I want you to go really slow when you clean it. Like that would be kind of funky, right? You'd be like, I don't know what that means. Um, that's part. Of, you got a question? Uh, yes, sir. Um, going off of what Ivan was talking mm -hmm. about, you said um, the skill in the Olympic lifts um, affects the um, you know a max for an athlete. Uh, a lot of times, they can get it can hinder the um, uh, athlete's potential or whatnot. Yeah. At, at what point do you do you start to transition more towards the uh, the actual catch or the or the clean? Are there more skilled movements of of the power exercise instead of like an introductory um, uh, or do, well, do you? Well, yeah, I, you know, I won't stop anybody from catching the clean if it looks like they can do it. But I, I don't know that you need to spend much time on it. I mean, I think you can pretty much see it right off the bat. The, the key for me with the, the power clean is another, it's, it's not much the technique, but it is if you had a room, unless guys are squat clean, if you had a room of, you know, 30 people doing the clean. It's not necessarily guys, girls do them too. If you had 30 people doing the clean, I think you'd see 30 different bar levels, wouldn't you? Because you got, you got this, you got this, you got this, all that. All those cleans are different, you know? So that's, when you're telling me, oh, I need, you know, I'm putting this power clean in place, we're gonna have this, you know, I'm gonna look at the numbers and the average, like, so you're already, your numbers are invalid and unreliable because nobody's catching the bar at the same height, right? So that, that's another thing. So if you're saying, you know, if you got your cleans going, at least tell me that you're catching it at the same height. And what he was talking about was the one thing I referenced in my piece. What about two guys that pull the bar at the same height? Mm -hmm. Same load, same height. One guy doesn't have the flexibility to, to pull it. The other guy does. So we drop him down, right? And now he can clean it. So now he's been penalized. We're, trying, we're, right. we're testing power. Instead, what we've done is we've tested elbow flexibility and shoulder flexibility. That's a mistake. It doesn't make any sense at all. But 
believe me when I tell you, people are taking that, oh, our average power clean is this. Like, no, it's not. It's not even, yeah, those numbers mean nothing to me. Just like a squat program, you know, everybody who's going to different depths, you know, and you say our average squat is this, and you look in the room and there's 10 or 20 different squats. In my case, I, I, I believe this to be true, especially on some of Stuart McGill's work, is that not everybody can get into a full squat, so I don't make them. But I also don't have an average squat. It's all individualized. Your squat depth stays there, right? So it's, you know, flexibility I think is overrated in lots of ways. The problem with, over, with flexibility only comes if you've lost it, right? When people tell you that if you have, you know, bad hamstring flexibility and you've hurt yourself, and now your hamstring flexibility is even worse. I've got to get you back to where you were, at least. So it's it's the it's the baseline that's the most important thing. It's not that you can do the Chinese splits. It's it's what is your level already with your flexibility. And you know, again, if it, what's my intent? My intent is to test power. Then why are you being penalized because you have bad shoulder flexibility? Why am I spending all this time with all these techniques, which are super valuable if you're going to be a weightlifter, and I got you in the bar, and we're doing all this, and we're rolling, and all that. I mean, what, what is that? And so now, let's take it a step further. When you're in college, I only have so much time, and I only have so many racks, and I only got so many coaches, so I can't spend that time doing that. There's no damn way I'm doing that, right? Yes, yes, ma'am. So from a coaching perspective, you just made the college reference. Time is obviously key, and these yep. athletes aren't necessarily as concerned with the science behind all of it. How are you translating that to the conversation you're having with the athletes of why so-and-so is doing this, why so-and-so is not doing that? What kind of conversations are you having with the athletes from that perspective to kind of dumb it down, per se? Well, I, you know, honestly, I've never had any, except for somebody not doing something, like they're not running or they're not squatting heavy, I think somebody might raise an eyebrow, how come they're not doing that? I've never really had anybody ask me why they're doing something different. So, and I'll give you an example, and I think I, I alluded to this in some article I wrote, but it was about individual, the individualized program thing that just came out today. Um, so I had 10 basketball players I had five freshmen, something like that, but 10 returning players. All 10 of them had different programs, so different that none of them could train together. So I'm actually individualized. I'm unlike some people that say, oh, I get my programs are individualized. It really is just, it's just percentages. Well, that's not really individualizing it, right? So, but all those guys are doing, they're doing different menus, they're doing different orders. All these things are happening with them and they just go do their work. I never had somebody say, why is, I don't, I think they're less enamored with the science than they are with how do I jump higher and run faster. And that's really where we start, right? When we talk about the basics, you know, you see all these fancy quotes and quips and, you know, these, it's all about this, you know, like, and there's so many of them. So it's really not all about that because there's like a hundred. But for us, um, and I was talking to Todd DeSorbo this morning, who's the head swim coach at University of Virginia, he was the head. Uh, he was the head of our sprint program and our swim program at uh, NC State, and now he is the head swim coach there. What he says covers everything that we know, right? So what kind of program do you want for your sprinters, Todd? What he'd say is, I want every one of my sprinters to dunk. Well, think about that. That covers lots of things, right? You gotta be explosive. To be explosive, you gotta be strong. If you're gonna jump, you gotta have legs. If you got I me, mean, and what's important about swimming, starts and turns. 
I mean, so when he says that, you go, damn, that covers just about everything we do, from physiology to biomechanics. So in general, because they don't run, our thing is, in addition to that, is how do we get them to, to jump higher and run faster? Like basketball, I just want to jump higher. That's cool, because if you jump higher, that covers lots of stuff, lots of stuff. And so that's the explanation that you have science-wide. And in the end, you know, it is about performance. And unfortunately, you know, I thought we did a pretty good program, a pretty good job with getting our guys to jump out. We had six guys jump over 40 inches last year. We had another kid, it would have been seven, but he was sick that day. He jumped 39 the year before as a freshman. So I like what we did there. But our team didn't win, so I become part of uh, a longer summer vacation than I intended it to be. But I'm way more tan than I've ever been now, so <laughs> I don't mind that. Was that on the Vertec? That was on the Vertec, but here's the key to that. Uh, the Vertec, it was done by BAM, Basic Athletic Movement. A guy by the name of Brett Brungard runs BAM. It's the MBA combine physical testing part of it. So he's got all the data since 1999 on every guy who's been through the combine that ran through that test. Now, not, not, not every guy in the combine ran through that test, right? Just like in the NFL, not everybody goes there. But if they're gonna do it, so he's got a protocol of five tests. It's approach, standing, got the four corner drill, got a uh, three quarter court sprint, and then a reaction time. So he's got boatloads of data on that, and he's got a protocol, so it's not like, Okay, Bob, you have the Vertec, get your guys to jump. No, there's a protocol. It's around the three, can't be outside the three-point line and all that. So, and the other part of it is that I like and that I would challenge anybody is it's also uh, third-party testing. So it's not me saying, oh, you got the white one, <laughs> bing. You know, like, oh, okay, oh, no, I think you got that, everybody. Oh, yeah, you got that too. I'm out of it. I'm not even involved. Uh, so that's what I like about it. I like that. You know, when you hear somebody else, oh, we, this guy jumped so-and-so, I mean, who knows what they jumped. All I know is I'm out of it. We do it one time a year, and we get that number. And then part of that is, again, taking the data that we had on that physical testing, and I programmed off that. So again, using the physiology that you've been taught and that you know and that you continue to reap here, if I, if I look at the data, and I found out that the four-corner, the four-lane agility, right, the four-way lane agility, you guys know this one, right? Sprint, lateral, back pedal, lateral, lateral, sprint, lateral, back pedal to finish, with the cones. That correlated to the best BAM total score, right? So it was a correlation of 0 .94, 0 .96, something like that. Well, you think about it. Okay, so why does that reflect the best BAM score? Well, because you have speed, because you have change of direction. If you have speed and change of direction, you have strength. If you have strength, change of direction, and speed, you jump high. So all those things correlated to that. So I could go to that and say, all right, what are we doing? And then I can take off of that, look at the three-quarter court, look at the jumps, and figure out you need more strength. You're strong enough. We need to do you know, whatever it is. So I actually kept feeding that into it. And if I can get them to jump high and get that four-way agility to go right, then I knew we were going in the right direction. So I love, I love the fact that we have more data now than ever before because it's the way you should be programming. If you're not using your data to program, you're just guessing. You're just, you're just guessing. And uh, you know, at the highest levels, hope is a bad strategy, I promise you. You got a question? Yeah. 
just in terms of going back to like you're in the uh, college track room mm -hmm. that happens regularly. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of economy of time, mm -hmm. is there ever a situation that you would consider utilizing the power clean at all? It, and I know that, but there there are situations where, and for example, we have the NCFC in here and NC Courage in here, and they're it's similar uh, in the sense that we've got sometimes 20 minutes, sometimes yeah. 40. Um, where you have to kind of chuck all your boxes over a course of time. Um, and you talked about basically at that point it just becomes about bracing. It is really the only consideration for you at that point. And okay. you're not even sure about that yet. In well, it's going to happen, but we'll be, right. it'll be conclusive here pretty soon. Right. Um, so would you ever consider utilizing that for that purpose? If you, for, for, say, for example, you can get your Olympics in, but we're not going to get a chance to squat if we want to hit X, Y, and Z today. Maybe we should let them catch and do that. Well, so what, what happened in the years ago, which doesn't happen anymore as much, we used to do things called two plus twos, two plus ones, right. two plus, okay? I would do that instead. So for instance, if, if we see guys cleaning, clearly on YouTube, we see guys cleaning weight here and then going down into squat coming up, right? Where, so you, it's a weight that you can clean higher than that, clean faster than that, but instead you're slowing it down to squat it. Just clean it and then squat it. So instead, what you should be doing is taking 70% in here and it should look more like this. Right? And then get your two front squats full in and okay. then drop it. So you, you know, or go two and two, you know, two cleans and make sure, you know, if you're gonna go, if you're gonna clean a weight, you gotta pull as fast as you can, not just fast enough to get underneath and go out, because that, that's just a waste of time. Right? It's a, you're not getting anything out of it. But if you're, if you're, if you're down for time, your squat program is at a place you, you want it already, then you don't mind taking a 70%, you know, which is probably less. So it's probably 70% of your clean, but not 70% of your squat. And go ahead and get a little full body work in. I don't mind that. But then again, you just outlined your intent. My right. intent is not to maximize that. My intent is I'm out of time and I need some, I want to get a total body. Perfect, that's, that's perfect. You fully supported what you're what you're trying to do there. Yes, sir. A little tangent. You mentioned you did the testing um, with the third party once mm -hmm. a year. In house, how often do you test throughout the year? And what test? Well, basketball just once. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say that. No, I mean weightlifting. We're doing it every you know whatever end of the cycle. Depends on the summertime. Every five weeks, and you go. We go through an eight week period in September. And it's different for everybody. And after that, you know, with the freshman during the season, I may test them once or twice, but typically that test is going to be an assessment. It's going to be something at 90, 95, and if it looks easy, I, I can kind of forecast. You know, they could have got two or three with that, so I'm good with bumping it up a little bit. You've got to be really cautious and conservative about bumping up somebody's max. As much as we all like to see that happen, in the end, it's about jumping higher and running faster. So you gotta make sure you're careful with where those numbers are, right? Keep in mind too, with the pull, and even in the clean, even in the clean, if it's bad technique, that's not your max. Because you're not a weightlifter. And weightlifting, they don't care what it looks like when it comes off the floor, aside from dropping it too early or you know, not, not following the regulations. Because you're going for max weight. But if I, have, if I see any of this right here with the weight, say we're trying to get the bar here, if I see this here, no lift. No lift, there's no connection there. If you see somebody you know, swing it out and they catch the bar here and then they squat up with it, I'm saying that's no lift. You swung it, you know, which is a lot of, a lot of hand clean stuff you see, right? You see all that, like those aren't, that's not what we do. And, as, and it's on, on a side note for the hand clean, 
The hand clean is not a core lift for an Olympic weightlifter. It's a technical speed lift for them. It's a, a supplement, it's nothing they do, right? So when we have cleans in there, we're doing all these hand cleans, and they say, oh, you know, we're, I, I don't get that. Because when you think about it, you could probably take all those programs that are doing hand cleans, put that same weight on the ground, and they probably won't be able to do it. So now we put in the common sense of it. That doesn't make sense to me. Right? Because no weightlifter can out hang clean their full clean. <laughs> so it doesn't make sense that you can't lift that same weight off the ground. You're losing something there. That's why I like going from the ground instead of not the hang. Now I will I will start, and it's not it's just a quick kind of tutorial. I'll start the snatch off a block. Just so, just so I know they, I'm trying to make them jump. Like I don't want them to use all their legs the first time they do it because the fact that we're probably only using 40 kilos with somebody that's over 200 pounds, they can do just about anything they want to get it up over the hip if they wanted to, right? So I just put them right here and say, now you gotta jump, right? And they'll see like, oh, no, you gotta, you gotta jump. Get these things up here. I'll start that and then later on I'll get them on the ground. Yeah. Something you said gave me Anything about question? It might be a dumb question, but um, you know, some of the strength and power requirements of changing direction. Well, mm -hmm. would some of that still apply to, like, say, like a, a clean? You have to quickly change direction, of course, from vertically um, to pulling that under. Is there not some sort of essential power requirement to be able to quickly change direction from the maximal upward force to pulling yourself under? Explain it to me again now. So you're it's kind of like in the same like this right here, changing direction. That yeah, it's like or the, come out of the, the requirements, like force-wise, to be able to quickly change directions from applying maximum force upwards to applying as much force to pull yourself under at the same time. Kind of change of direction um, in that aspect. I, you know, I, I I don't in my mind. I'm not seeing that really very clearly. I see what you're saying though. I see uh -huh. what you're saying. But keep in mind now, keep in mind now, and here's the other piece of the puzzle, is that you're practicing, you're drilling. So I say, let's squat, let's get really strong, and then we're gonna drill you, and you're gonna practice, and you're gonna take that squat and put it into a backpedal sprint, a sprint backpedal, a left to right, a right to left. And we're not gonna be able to duplicate that in the gym. You know, I had somebody talk to me about, you know, well, the cleans, you know, we, we, we it's, it's like football where you can receive that. And I want them to learn how to receive the bar. And I say, do you think that those 15 reps are going to overcome the tackling drills in the football games? No way. There's no way. It happens way too much out there. You know, I mean, that's what's going to teach you to do that. And by the way, it's not all here, right? It's here, it's here, it's here. It's all kinds of ways. It's here. It's, it's not, you know, you talk about that a little bit, but. I think we get caught up in trying to duplicate sports skills in the weight room, like tying a, a bat to a cable. I mean, if you've ever played baseball, there's, there's nothing that's even close to swinging a bat on the field that equates to taking a cable and all that. And that's not the dynamic behind a swing. Just get strong. In fact, David Zemanski did a study on um, high, school, high school baseball players did two groups. Both did full body workouts, nothing special. Bench squat, deadlift, lap pull, bicep curl, whatever, right? The other group did what's considered quote unquote baseball specific, right? Owner deviation, you know, radial, all that stuff, wrist curl, reverse. The group that didn't do that had more bad head velocity. 
at the end. Mm. So it's not even, so it's, it's clear that total body strength, and we know that total body strength is what creates a swing, what creates a throw, right? What creates a jump. And by the jump, up to, it's been years ago, but up to 20% of your jump could be con, uh, contributed by your arms, right? So it's not just a leg exercise. You've got timing, you've got upper body strength, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is why when we test like soccer, we do, um, we do use jump max. Who asked the question about testing? How often do I test? So we were doing, we, I included the jump mat with soccer this last period, but I was doing it every time we lifted. We lifted twice a week during spring practice. We got increases in strength and vertical jump during the hardest practices of the year. So what that tells you is they hadn't done anything until I got hold, and they actually weren't part of the strength program. Coach was dismissed, new coach came in, I started working with them. So, so here's another example of you don't have to be a freshman to make freshman-like gains. It's all about chronological training age. So there was juniors in there that hadn't trained in three years. Put them all on there. Anyway, we do the jump mat, but when you're doing the jump mat, we decided to put that protocol across all teams so you can compare them. So we did uh, a counter movement, a static jump, and a 20 kilo jump uh, with the bar across the back. So we took the arms out because jumping is a skill. We want to make sure we, we can get this thing down and we figure out what guys are doing. You know, in the static jump would be one, two, three, jump. And we took the goniometer out, put 90 degrees on them, make sure it was 90 and they jumped. So we did that with everybody from swimming to tennis to, so we can start comparing numbers. But that's when you're doing vertical jump testing, except for volleyball, and I'll explain it to you in a minute, you want to take the arms out of it. Because not everybody's a good jumper, right? And not every position jumps. So your forwards who are faster, they do a lot of jumping, right? They'll be better at it than your defenders who don't do hardly any. So you're gonna get, you know, and the despair and the and the disparity between approach jumps and uh, standing jumps is different between the two groups. So you have to be careful with comparing that as well. Now in volleyball, absolute reach is important. So they have you know, we take vertical jump, but in volleyball you take absolute jump height. So if you have a 40-inch vertical jump, but you still can't get up to 11.6, you're not going to play because it's absolute height that you're going for. Not that you have a 40-inch vertical jump. If you're 5'10", it doesn't do any good. But if you're 6'6", 6'7", and you can touch you know, 12 feet or whatever it is, then, then you got a chance. So volleyball is a little different in terms of you want to see everything they can. And arm swing is important, especially when you're on the outside. That's all part of the, the whole deal, right? Yes? So going back to like the pulling derivatives and mm -hmm. things like that, do you have a progression that you like go through to, from the mm -hmm. hang or blocks mm -hmm. over ground based on experience, strength levels? It's a two-step progression. We deadlift for a year and then we pull. That's it. I don't I don't believe in teaching the athlete, okay here, okay here, okay here, okay now this and all that. I think it's a waste of time. And I think it's a waste of time because I can show you that by saying it's just essentially a deadlift and then the second pull. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't know it. I think it's important that you do know all those patterns because then you can, you can discern what needs to be worked on. So maybe that you see something and say, you know, there's too much, uh, too much arm work in there. I'm gonna put you out of, the, uh, out of blocks high so you can't pull that thing up. You gotta punch it, right? That's, that's a rarity. So all I do is I, I deadlift my clean deadlift athletes for a year. 
anywhere eight months to a year, because frankly, sometimes you don't get them in the summertime, so I say a full year. It's just their academic year, probably. And here's why, because the moment of separation, as soon as a bar leaves the ground, it gets that far off the ground, that's the spot that's so critical, right? If that's wrong, you cannot correct the rest of the lift. It just won't happen. It's, it's not, you're unable to. Um, so I want to make sure that we get that you can just get underneath it and not, I don't want you to worry about can I get the bar off the ground. I want you to worry about can I get the bar up here. So you should be able to rip as much as you can right here, all right? And it's just stand up, drop it. Grab it, set up, drop it. The next exercise that I do after that is I say, now we're going to clean pull. Here's what you're going to do. So now keep in mind now, they've already seen the older athletes do that. They see them, they're all doing it right, so they got the visual. And then halfway through the year, so I have a bar warm that we do, which is a squat press pull. And all it is, bar on the back, 10, 15 squats, 10, 15 presses, and 10, 15 you know, deadlifts, just patterning the lift, rep after rep after rep, right? So at the end of the week, we have a three-week three program. We have 45 correct deadlifts. No way on the bar. So we're going mid-shin, which is about right. At some point before the end of the season, I switch that deadlift into a high pull. So now they're just going to be here, you know, and it's, it's similar pattern. But, you know, remember now, the power clean and the Olympic lifts in general, they're an exercise that's hard to do when the weight's not heavy enough. Right, it's hard to do it right. We've seen it with you know that kind of stuff, or you know whatever it is, right? So it's, you kind of have to find out where that is. But on the first day, I'll take one of the coaches out who I've talked to and say, "Look, I'm going to prove it to you right now. But here's what I want you to do: you're going to deadlift the bar to here, and once you get here, you're just going to jump and pull, go. And between reps one and three, it's done. And then they just refine it over because they've already got the, the hardest part of the lift is done." It gets right here. I said, when it gets right past your knee, right here, start pushing. So I think if you wait till it gets up in here, which which happens with weightlifters, which these kids are not, that that then it becomes you know you can't jump anymore because your hips are gone. I want them back here where they got all they can. Because the farther back your hips are, more stretch on the hamstrings, double knee, knee bend, and up you go. So I want them back here, like almost almost in a, in a good morning or RDL style. They pull up right to here and then punch. You do it in one set. And again, when you talk about maximizing time, they don't need to know the rest of that. There's no reason for it. Uh, in the first year where you're doing deadlifts, uh, do you have a go-to exercise to develop power while you're doing, like teaching that? Or you can go later to the high pulls? Well, so that's a good question. I say no and yes at the same time. Yes, what I want them to do is start working on some jumping, so I'll have them do them jump ups. Because I want, I want them to feel what full extension is. And the jumping procedure is whatever takeoff position you go in, if you take off from this spot, I want you to land that way. No deeper than that. If it's deeper than that, it's too high. Right? I don't want you just to jump up on the box. I want you to jump on the box correctly. Because you're gonna get you're gonna be full extended, then you're gonna tuck. And you're going to land in the same knee angle that you took off on. No, in that whoever's deadlifting, they're freshmen, right? Or incoming. So there's some kids I've had that have come from other programs or sophomores or juniors, and they end up making freshman-like gains because not everybody lifts weights, right? In other places. Uh, so... I've also spoke to that. So what they were doing 
because they were training for power, but they weren't tra power training because they're getting stronger. And as they're getting stronger, they're jumping higher and running faster. So they are getting more powerful while we're doing that. And again, we're also practicing and there's other things going on. But if there's any time that those, that, that force velocity curve is affected in the form of a vertical jump, it's just getting stronger, period. Yes. Yeah. Um, in today's article, you mentioned that uh, strength levels don't determine programming with the begin beginning athletes, EA freshmen probably. One more time. Strength levels don't determine programming with beginning athletes. You said that. Oh, right. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I probably see what you're saying because not uh, not everyone is lifting before they can come to you. Right. But and obviously, first my question is. Uh, do you really think that whole one year, do you need that you need one year of deadlifting to progress to some more advanced power stuff? And also, if you had guys like we have at Scholastic here or like James Baker is doing in the UK with good program with the kids, so you will get familiarized kids with the strength stuff, mm -hmm. uh, would you change your approach? Uh, because if you see that your athlete is more capable, is capable of some more advanced stuff, would you progress immediately? Or you would anyway, what you said before, limit him now and do the strength anyway? So what I was implying about the strength level doesn't matter is, so you have two freshmen come in and one squats, that would be typically not your freshman level squat, right? Pretty strong. And the other one is somewhere around that same kind of very limited area. The first couple of tests that we make on those incoming kids are more technical assessments. They're going to technically fail before there's a weight that they can do. And they're usually saying, I can do more. And I say, well, you can squat down and stand up with more, but you're not going to be able to do it correctly. So it's a waste. And I just forecast the weight because really every week they get stronger. Every week. So, you know, you can kind of add that in there. Um, so that's what I was saying. If a kid, if, if a freshman comes in and has had no experience, but has a higher than normal squat, I, I don't change a thing because that means they still they still room have room to get stronger. Okay. Their own capacity still is there. So even though there's a hundred pound difference in these two squats, their capacity for improvement still is the same because they're both the same person chronologically young, not, you know, haven't trained very much. Uh, that, that was the piece that I talked about. That I had a freshman, uh, like today, uh, I put it in there in the individualized program. I had a, a woman by the name of Natalie Williams. Yeah. So yeah. I'm telling you, it was the most unbelievable. I've not seen anything like it since. That was like 1989 or something. I can't remember now. But she took, I'll never forget this, and I can't remember. I'm trying to think if she played basketball here or not. So it may not have been. It might have been she went right from volleyball to in-season basketball. I probably didn't get her until the end. Now that I'm thinking about it, right? But she took for the first time. So she'd been squatting all along. I mean, try a little weight, try a little weight. She's playing every match, playing every game. She took 140 kilos, and she went down like, Kind of like, oh. and she stood up and she looked at me. She was that good? <laughs> I'm like, oh god, just put that back. <laughs> just, I put it in. I said, and that was the last time I tested her. I put that in there. I, there was no reason for me to test her anymore, from a safety aspect. So now I'm thinking, well, that doesn't mean she's not done developing. It just means I'm done putting as much weight on her back as possible. So I just end up kind of formulating that. So my point would be, I still developed her. What I'm saying is, just because she squatted 308 as a freshman, which I've never seen before, um, doesn't mean, okay, you're done squatting, or we're not going to develop you. That would be a mistake. 
And again, you know, I'm in a position now where I can say to you or to anybody really and say, hey, all I'm going to tell you is this. This is what I did and this is what happens. You got to figure out if I had a big impact on that. I don't know. I mean, you know, we all like to think we have a big impact, but in the end, we don't call plays. We don't substitute. We don't drop the puck. We don't, I mean, we, we, we you know, hey, we're healthy. I don't know. I mean, what do you want me to tell you? Uh, you can be really strong, but if you can't tell that's a slider coming, you're going to strike out, you know, right? If you, if you can't tell that's a draw play and you're dropping back, you're, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a 500-pound squat. So, uh, so all I know is we kept kind of going along with her, and she ended up having one hell of a career. But for me, that was like where the common sets came thing. If she was like this, 140, like, I don't know what else I want to do. I mean, she's like, you know, one of the best athletes I've ever seen. Um, so you said also too what I, the familiarity. So if you look at Jan, uh, Robert Newton, yeah. you right. seen that? Yeah, so that's my follow up. Uh, let's say if you had uh, an opportunity to work in uh, European football, yeah. and you you are asked to provide a top elite athlete by age of twenty, like yeah, it's always a case in Europe. Yeah, you don't care about you you know developing. Uh, 10 years an athlete. Uh, Robert Newton says, okay, if you don't develop strength at the maximum level, you don't have a potential to develop maximum power. Mm -hmm. So, how would you approach that on, uh, in that case? To the I don't development? think we can do it any other way because, you know, it's like, um, what's your name again? Ivan. So it's almost like, that. it's like in Natalie's case, she's going to play. There's nothing I can do about it. So all I got to do is, I keep the developmental schedule, but I got to drop the volumes, and the, probably not the load, but the volumes way down. She's going to keep developing. It's just not going to look the way that those other guys, other girls, are, are coming along because they're not playing. So I can have a little more freedom with them, right? But it's, you know, there's nothing. I can, what, what, what you end up doing, what it's every one of your jobs to do at that point is say, let me tell you what happens when we do this, mm. right? You're going to expect this great athlete, and I would expect it too. But, it's, but the parameters, and this is where the two separate because we've seen this now. Pete's seen it, Mike's seen it, and you've all probably seen it too. You, there's, I wouldn't say there's plenty of them, but there is some athletes who aren't very strong, who don't jump very high, and aren't very fast that are damn good, right? There's other athletes that are really strong, jump out of the gym, and aren't very good. So there's your bell-shaped curve. They're out here. We affect that group in the middle. We can take that person and move them over here and over here. And we affect, to, not everybody we affect, um, in, a, in, a, in a large capacity. So what I would say to them, like, this is this is what I know to be true. Will they be fast? They'll be faster? Yes. Will they jump higher? Yes. But they won't jump as high as they can and won't run as fast as they can unless we do this. But they still may be good enough to win a cup, right? Yeah. So you just have to kind of keep going. It's like the, it's like the Colts, you know, that for years, John Torrey with the Colts, they lived by the FMS because, you know, Bill Poiley in the gym at the time, uh, you know, said that I don't mind guys getting hurt. But I can't afford to have guys get reheard, so we're going to go through the schedule. So it was, it was uh, organization wide. But even Bill said, "Hey, this, we tested this guy out, and he's like a you know a nine on the FMS. You can't tell me not to draft him." John says, "Nope. <laughs> what are you going to do? Just go with the flow. Try to do the best we can." I mean, the guys clearly can play football. What can we do? You know, and the last thing in the pro setting, the last thing you want to do is find out that you told me not to draft him, and he's over there running for 1,500 yards every year. What happened, right? So, you know, there, there's there's that fine line of what we do being real, real good, but you don't want to say, 
so-and-so hit 300 and I trained him last year. Like, okay, the two may be mutually exclusive. I'm just saying. No matter how good you are, it could have nothing to do with it at all. Just like the training that some don't do at all and they're really good, you know? That is mutually exclusive. But what we do know is the likelihood of somebody being fitter, stronger, faster, and all that thing is better for them to be a better athlete, be healthier than somebody who doesn't. It's like the, like the sprinting thing. Was it like uh, if you're, what was the whole thing about being strong? Um, if, you're, if you're strong, there's no guarantee you'll be fast. But if you're weak, you're probably not going to have a chance, right? So, but we know that we got to move you that way a little bit just because of what we know scientifically. Sir, mentioned with athletes you're not comfortable doing a true max and you forecast out a max for them. What method do you use when you're forecasting that? So one more time, you said, is there somebody not comfortable doing it? No, you said with that athlete you weren't comfortable with her actually truly testing a learner max. Oh, after that one day? Oh, no, I just, well, yeah, yeah. No, for her, she was completely different. I just said, you know, we did, you know, 100 kilos for two reps for a couple of weeks. Okay, we're going to go to 105 now. That wasn't even a guess. I didn't even forecast. Now, this was a long time ago, too, but I don't remember forecasting her that way. With So, but freshman, I did uh, talk about testing them at 90%, seeing what that looks like. Give me a double at 90%. I usually go with 90 for four. If, if you get, give me a set of 90 for four, I can get a good number off you probably. But there is no, there is no substitute for a one RM. I'm, I'm just, I don't understand, I do understand, but I don't buy in that rep maxes can give you a true one RM because there's nothing about full on contraction. So if, a, so if a kid does a weight for four, what do you say their max is going to be? How do you determine what you're going to then use? Oh, I just I just got to extrapolate it off a chart I have. So I find I just go down the ninety percent and find out where that is. And there's the new max. Yeah. And eighty, you know, you kind of go. You have to go off of one set. But so it's different now. So when you look at when you look at sets and reps, and you think ninety for four is good, but ninety for three sets of four is <laughs> impossible. That's pretty tough. So I'm thinking like I go for one set on that. A couple of sets of twos or threes at 90 is about right for a 90 often off the full max. Just like if you were looking at 80% for one set, you'd probably look at a set of six to seven, somewhere in there. But you'd never do three sets of six or seven, otherwise it wouldn't be a max, right? That, that would end up being seven, four, two. You'd probably want to go three, four, or somewhere in there, five threes that we talked about, something like that. So you have to be careful, which is why, you know, like so, Prilipin's chart's another example. People talk about that chart, and they talk about this training and that training. <laughs> what I say to you is, take that and make it your training. You know, I, I think it's it's not confidence building for me or for you to say, oh, I use Prilipin's chart. Okay, what, what about, what's your chart? Like, I don't, I, over the years, I've just seen that. That's happened to me, like I can guess. And, you know, is it exact? I don't need it to be exact, you know, because if it was exact, it wouldn't be for any of us, right? If it was in kilos, it wouldn't be your max is 140, it would be your max is 141.75 if we wanted to be exact. But we're not exact. So what's the use, right? We get your max, that's it. And then you can say, well, here's the other piece too. You get somebody at 140, they go down, they come here, and they're like, ah, right? And you say, okay, so now do I go to 150? I think you'll miss. All right, what do we do? Go from, so we're talking maxes now, right? Go 142, 145? Why would you do that? Risk, you're, you're at top level training and you're gonna put five pounds, 10 pounds on, 11 pounds? Leave it alone, that's enough. 
your max is 140. You'll, we'll trade you off of 150 because I think that's what you can get. It's too risky to put five kilos on there. When you're squatting, you should be throwing on 20s, you know, and then going from there and figuring out where your max is before that. So, you know, I'm sure you have to be exact on that because you can always change that as time goes on. But in the end, you know, as exactly as we think training is, just that whole total stressor of stuff happening will come out in the end as, you know, running faster and jumping higher and affect how you go. But I, you know, I, I think, now listen, I think that when I was younger, like anybody, you want to have numbers. Like my guy squatted this and that was good and that wasn't and all that. But in the end, you know, you realize that it's really not the end of the, the rainbow, it's not. You know, so I don't, you know, I don't feel bad about not having an average squat on my basketball team. I feel pretty good about six guys jumping 40 inches. I'd like to see that anywhere in the country. I don't think it exists. So that, I guess what I did for you, and then what if you and you was right, because I got you guys all to jump high, you know? And, and we had, I guess we, get, we had an average bench. Everybody bench pressed, so that was easy, but I, I never really posted any averages, but I was pretty happy to, to post our vertical jump average and our four-way agility scores. and. The clean pull scores I liked because we had some kids pulling 140, guards pulling 140 up to here. And I think that's pretty good, especially some of those guys, their max deadlift was 140 just a year and a half before that. So it's easy, it's fun to show that. You look, remember that weight right there? That was your deadlift weight. Now you're airborne with that thing. You're off the ground. Boom. Right there. That's impressive. Yeah. What You mentioned that you had those six guys over 40. Where did that rank, I guess, in terms of, obviously those guys are a lot of them prepping for a couple of them at least are prepping for the draft, where did that rank them with incoming prospects? And then is there any way that if you're working with BAM, do they have a way to show you, hey, these are your numbers relative to the other yeah. six schools? Oh, well, so there was no other six schools. Yeah, basically, I was yeah, there's hardly anybody, that they there's hardly anybody who was using it. We have NBA numbers, because frankly, right. you know, it's, it's even if you had a young sprinter and you thought they'd be good, you would have to show them world-class times, because that's where you're heading. Right. right, I mean that's got to be your ultimate goal, not to be you know the best player in California right. or wherever you are. So our thing was, if you think you're going to be in the league, which is could be next year or two years, you need to know what the league's doing. So I would just show them those numbers. Percentile, do you know about where you got your guys were at? Uh, I have, I did, I took all the combine numbers from 1999 in every position and average them. I can't remember what the hell they were now, okay. but I will say this: so Malika Boo, do you know who he is? So Malika Boo jumped 44 and a half inches. It was the best recorded jump in combine history. Okay. Nobody else jumped higher than him. Mm -hmm. And I had a couple of guys at 41 and a half, and those guys were like in the guards were like top six ever. Okay. Um, and I think Abu, there's a couple of the guys that had, Torn Dorn had a reaction shuttle that was number two all time. So Abu had the highest jump all time for power forwards and the highest jump of all anybody time. who's ever jumped. Uh, so yeah, we had some really good numbers. I was really happy with that. When I first came here, we had zero guys. And then the next year was one, next year was two, the next year was two, and then four, and then... So, now here, here's the other piece of this. As much as I'd like to say, wow, I'm really good, we got better players because we got really good. So that's the other part where you can't say, hey, look at me. It's sometimes it's... So I wasn't concerned about that. But here's what made me happy about Abu. He came in at 40 inches. So it wasn't as if I took somebody from jumping 25 to 28, which, you know, anybody can get guys who aren't fast. You can get slow guys fast, that's easy. To get fast guys faster, pretty hard, huh? 
you got to be pretty good. So I'm, I'm myself, I'm happy that I got somebody who jumped really, really high and got him to jump three more inches in a year. That fired me up. So it wasn't the, 40, the 44, I literally, it was just that kind of thing. And then from your testing protocol, um, we have a system here, we use the push band that you're probably mm -hmm. aware of, uh, and it has a uh, basically a one rep max projection. Um, and we actually utilize that to some extent in our track training where it's basically um, sets of three, five of them, and the push band calculates your velocity on each of them. Okay. Uh, and then depending on the time of year, we also will potentially attempt that weight or, or work up closer to that weight for a one RM. Uh, is that something that you'd consider and do you feel like it might be more reliable than the chart that you have and where did you, what is your chart based off of? So hold, hold on a second, go back over again. So you're yeah. talking about three sets of five on a pool? So it's five sets of three and it's actually, it's a variety of exercises. If I'm not mistaken, it does, you can do clean bench and squat, is that right? I don't think you can do clean. Okay, so you can do bench and squat. Bench, squat, deadlift. It's, it's based off of what uh, Ivan was talking about before. Yeah. The flagging, uh, lighting, Basically, that continuum of trajectory of, yeah. uh, and each exercise has roughly different has different fail points, roughly, and um, so that it basically just charts out the line of best fit. Um, for some people, it's incredibly accurate. For other people, it's not. Just like a rep max chart is basically so. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is which is funny about that. So you know, Prilipin used to be the Russian strength coach for years. Right, so his numbers came off of Russian weightlifters, not volleyball players, not, not female 50 meter sprinters in the water. So, you know, when we're talking about Prilipin Sharp, we're talking about guys who lifted for a living, right, and who lifted every day and who had all these resources around them. I don't know how that, I don't know where that comes from. So, my chart comes from yeah. me. <laughs> from seeing what I see every day for 35 years. I know that, and I, I'm pretty damn close. It's easy to walk right up to the chart and say, you're about right here, you know? And so, like, like so for instance, after we finished, after we finished with um, the first five weeks of freshman lifting, right, where they start with the bars, five sets of five, we just we start with 40 kilos and we just go from there, put more weight on, put more weight on, put more weight on, right? And then what I'll do is I'll take that last set, right, I'll take that last set, of five, and I'll go to 85%, which is underestimating, right? Because they've already done other sets. It's underestimating that number, because if it was a max set of five, then they wouldn't be able to do anything before or after that, right? And I can go right across and say, okay, and now that's what we're gonna shoot for. And typically, it doesn't stop there, it's probably just a little bit under, which would also, which would also, um, uh, what would I say? It would compensate for the fact that technically is what we're looking at. We're not looking at strength, so I back it off enough where it could be it, it could be that technically they'd barely get that weight, which they could probably do more, but technically not, right? So just keep it right there. And the other part of that is if they are freshmen, there's a good chance that even though they did that five sets of five or whatever it was, that weight that's gonna they're gonna try to max might be the first time they've ever had that kind of weight on a bar in the bench, the squat, or the deadlift. So now you like, especially in the squat, when you're talking about putting something on somebody's spine that they've never had before, you've got to be short of that. You know, even though you know they can squat more, I say, what's the use? You know, that's good. We'll, if it's if you squat 120 and it looks like you do 135, we'll cycle you up 135. I'll just back up farther off the beginning. 
So I'll individualize that a little bit. Um, and the closer it gets to where technical and strength are a little closer, then I can get closer to a true um, programming on that. But I think anytime you anytime you have a marker, if you have you know, you got to put a stake in the ground somewhere and say, okay, we're going to start here, right? Which is my eighty-five on the five, right? Which is for you guys is here's your velocities or here's what we've seen over time. You know, uh, David Tenney, who's up at Seattle, you know, talking to him about soccer and what's been going on in soccer for all you know for a while, and um, we just talked about testing. And of course, he's he's like us, though. He's like us. He's all about weightlifting for soccer, and you know, he's just really good with the the tracking side of it. But when you talk about testing, he makes a great point. He says, think about this data wise. If you have enough information on the Cooper test, then that becomes a reliable and valid test. You're going to have some correlation there with your whole team. You're going to have that test, and then you're going to have some other parameters on there, right? And it'll, it'll, the numbers will lay down enough and point to something. So if you have something in place, like you have here, or like I have, there's an intent behind it, clearly supported with information, uh, and willing to listen to hear if anything's better, then you're in good shape. You know, you're in good shape, absolutely. I think I, I think a lot of the testing gets too too complex, you know, like all the beep testing and all that stuff in soccer. Like, it's too much. I did I did I did the continuous beep test, which is a good aerobic test, right? I did a 10 20 yard sprint and I did a 300 yard uh, shuttle run. So I have aerobic capacity. I got speed endurance and speed, and I can tell exactly what program each one of those guys needs or women by looking at those numbers. If you've got a great continuous beep and your speed is lower than average, you need to get faster. Then I just go to the strength numbers and probably their strength numbers are lower than normal. We get any stronger, that number goes up. It's not gonna affect this one. If you've got good 10, 20 meter speed, but you got poor speed endurance, then you probably also have poor beep test. That means you have good speed, but you can't repeat it. So I fix that. It's, it tells you exactly what program you do. Then you put the, the beep test and the shoots and all that together. Like, why is everybody trying to re, redesign that? It's not that hard. You know, I'd even say, too, with that beep test or with those three tests, you could uh, reliably make comments about the body composition of an athlete or their diet, uh, stuff like that, because their numbers would be misrepresented or, or uh, out yeah. of whack at some of those tests. No question. You know, the other also comment I was going to make, too, sure. just in my experience, because you and I are pretty much the same age, and I've been doing this for 37 years, but I'm going to be honest, I have never seen an athlete regret doing base training for a long time. Like, your question about doing deadlifts for a year, or, yeah. I honest to God, it might not make the improvements in the short time, yeah. but in the long run, you'll have less injuries. The athlete, and I'm just talking from experience, so I don't have data at all, so I know yeah. that you're into that, but... Uh, the guys that have lasted the longest in my sport have always had long periods of, like a year. It might seem like a long time to young people, but it isn't. <laughs> yeah, one of the one of the kind of theories that goes along with the prep phase, like you can, you never want to shorten the prep phase. Yeah, that's ever. what I meant. You know, you always want to go as long as you can. On in Europe, back in the day, in Europe, a prep phase sometimes lasted a year or two. It wasn't like weeks. It was a year yeah. of just. You know, dismantling the lifting, the techniques, all these things, not just lifting, but remember that that prep period, somebody asked me about this online, like, you know, would you do that with everything? And I say, well, of course you would. I mean, you're not, you're not going to be baseline strength training 
and doing fart like 400s. I mean, that, that's, those are two different kind of things. You should be, if you're doing that, then your technique work on the track is probably very basic, very tempo-based, uh, you know, that kind of thing. If they're not separate, they're all the same. You know, they're all the same. Yes, sir. Uh, one, one question probably everyone will like to hear the answer is that you mentioned in one of your articles that if I'm citing you now, okay. if you are practicing your sport and have a good squat program, eccentrics will take care of themselves. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that. So all of a sudden, eccentrics, which we've known a long time, are already out there, right? Now all of a sudden they're a big deal. And I say, well, so let's be clear about this now. Eccentrics is not, eccentric training in itself is not anything below 100%. You're just slowing weight down. So if you're gonna maximize that training, doing 80% slow is not eccentric training, that's doing 80% slow. And you're not gonna hurt yourself going slow at 80%. Running, jumping, swinging, throwing, think about that. If you're throwing 80% as far as you can throw, the chances of getting hurt aren't very good. If you really want that to pay off, if you look at, if you look at uh, well, older school uh, weightlifting and powerlifting, they're taking max loads and partial ranges as much as they can crank. Now that's eccentrics, if you really want to think about it. Or you know, or when you got hooks, that's the other thing we're thinking about building a power lift is those eccentric hooks, you know what I'm talking about? Well now that's eccentrics, where you can take 100% or above, squat down with it here, and then they unhook, and now you've got 80% on the way up. Now you can only do sets of one with that, but still, the value of eccentrics is not repetition. If you're doing repetition eccentrics, then they're not eccentrics. If you're training, Correctly, if you're squatting correctly, if you're deadlifting, you know, all those things, you're doing, you're finding that other motion up and down. To load that up could bring some benefit, but if, but if you look at the science behind eccentrics, it, it's got the most, you know, it'll, it'll produce the most cortisol, it'll produce the most muscle damage. That's not a beginning or even intermediate training method. That's an advanced method. Uh, and you wouldn't want to start with that. Oh, yeah. so, so the question, isn't so much would you use that, it would be when would you use that, oh, okay, then. and it would be somebody like, you know, who's at the very top, where you, now you gotta start doing some things to get that body to move a little bit. But in, but in general, eccentric training, I, and I don't know if I said that exactly, but, but I will say that if you're, you know, when you're thinking about deceleration, if you don't know how to break down and, and retreat, well you can do all the eccentric squats you want, you got no chance. Uh, you got to be able to see where you put your feet and be able to back out. So that's timing, that's visual, that's identification. All that stuff is, is technically sound, being able to teach all that side to side, back and forth. But think about eccentrics too. Think about eccentrics too. In, in, your, in your case, and I know you didn't mean to say this, <laughs> I do know what you're meaning, but, but think about it. If I'm doing eccentric squats, right? Okay. And I'm saying, okay, I'm making some progress there. But when, you, when you're backpedaling, so whatever you're doing, identifying in soccer, tennis, one way or another, you're sprinting, are you really doing eccentrics? You're not, you're not. Because if you are, you're gonna lose, right? So if I'm going in here and I see, I think she's gonna, I think she's gonna dink me on a tennis. I, I hit her back in the corner, she's gonna dink me here, and all of a sudden she reaches back and looks like she's gonna whack one. I don't wanna have to go like this, right? I don't want to have to go like this. Because <laughs> if you look at pictures of Barry Sanders and guys who can really cut, they plant, they don't go past right there. It's right off, right? 
they plant right here, and they don't, they don't. The weaker guys go this way, not the stronger guys, the weaker guys, the stronger guys, and they go, right? And you can only learn that from, from two things, that's identification of your sport, and just doing it, you know? And if you have pretty strong legs, it's just gonna happen, so I don't, I don't know where all this eccentric stuff came in. Eccentric overload, and what do you think of then about a flywheel training as a method? It's not eccentric overload. So flywheel training is only putting back what you're putting into it. Eccentric overload, in that case, would be... You yeah, know, you can do it. I mean, it's easier to do eccentric overload with the flywheel. That's what I was thinking. Let's say you do the deadlift on the way up and you do the RDL. Oh, you're talking about down. because of the isokinetics of it? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, so that we talked about this last week too. Like, so, so just so you know, the flywheel is not eccentric. It, it accentuates the eccentric move, right? Yeah. So true eccentrics on the flywheel would be, I'm pulling 100 kilos up, and it's pulling me down at 120, right? That would be true eccentrics. That, that flywheel is only positive, positive. It's the same thing, 100 up, 100 down, but it paces you, so it's isokinetic. It, it comes back to the same speed, which is good. It's valuable, and I'm just doing an article right now writing on unstable training, so it also has some value because anything that's not fixed on a bar, cable stuff is considered moderately unstable, so it's also offering some, some variance in your training there, which could be, probably not in the elite population, but in the beginning population, could be of some benefit. Um, but in terms of squatting anyway, I mean, nobody's driving in there and driving out on a squat or you know certain good morning exercises or, or RDLs and I yeah certainly we know that, that the overload is important we know that it exists we know that for sure we know there's capabilities there but it's such an advanced technique you know okay. that yeah, yeah I agree yeah I think you need to have some great base training on that to be able to and and who are you if you're doing that anyway I mean you're like you're like Usain Bolt or something like that you're way up there if it's if it's going to be happening for you. And the whole idea of eccentric hamstring work, I mean, look, I, Mike, you looked at the Nord board at all. Do you and I talk about this last time? Uh, I've looked at it, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I did too. Talk about yeah, so, the, so they talked about, you know, hamstring training over in, in the Premier League, right, about how, what's the value of that, and then we, we, put the, we put the Nord board out or whatever it was, that sort of training. You know what I'm talking about, right? An injury went down in the soccer players by X amount. My response to that is, if those guys did anything, their injuries would go down by X amount. So I can't really, I can't really say that the Nord board is really helpful there in going in eccentrics. But here's another thing you need to look about. Look at, again, you look at your intent. If you lined up 20 people in a row right here, and, you sit, and they're all sitting like this, right? And you say, okay, ready, go. To a person, you'd have 20 different strength ranges on there, am I right? You'd have the guy that would just go <laughs> like that, and then you'd have the person who could probably go all the way down and maybe come back up, and then you'll have everything in between. So essentially, in summary, you've now put in a manual hamstring exercise that has a different effect for every single person, right? So think about that. Is there any other exercise that you guys do, or you girls do, where you say, okay, I'm gonna give this exercise to these six people, and it's gonna affect them differently, everyone. Can you think of one? No, you can't, can you? I mean, if I do a set of eight and on the curls, right, and it's 100 pounds, and, and I can get my eight in, and you use 20 pounds, and you use 30 pounds, 
we all get the same effect because 88 eight reps is about 77, 75%, right? We're all gonna get the same effect even though it's different. But if I said, you know, you do eight, six, five, four, three, two, one, which is essentially that whole, hold it here, 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 and here, we're all gonna get a different program. We don't want that really. That's why I, that, that, that hamstring thing, I understand you can't buy, you know, 12 hamstring exercise or 12 post-chain developers. I get that part. But everybody can do this, right? Everybody can do this, or one-sided lateral hamstring. That whole, that whole manual hamstring thing, I don't like it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Every, every single person has a different strength range on that, so we're not getting the same thing. Anyway, it's just eccentric part that kind of got me on that. Anyone else? Do you do jerks? I know you mentioned snatch and the clean pulls. Do you do jerks at all? I haven't lately. I'm not against it. I'm not against it. Back in the 80s, we were doing uh, behind the neck snatch presses with a volleyball team. So, I mean, it depends on, and, and so my volleyball girls at UCLA were really good. Really good. Somewhat dominated the 90s. Uh, but what I liked about what we did there was kind of the, the specificity behind what they do. So we did snatch grips, good mornings. Nobody does good mornings anymore. Why, why is that? I don't know why. Anyway, so you got snatch grip, good mornings. I put them in this position here, and I had them push, bam, right? Which is the same as that. I want to put them in that position. So I wasn't afraid to do it. Gotcha. And they were overhead throwers, we all did it. I'm not against the jerks. Uh, if I was to do it, and I thought it would be a good idea, I'd probably do behind the neck push presses, or maybe jerks too. I just think it's hard for, if you look at people learning to do it, it, it there's a lot of this right here, right? It's not, you know, it's hard to get. Once you put that bar there and you're centered, you got a little more push out of it. So, you know, first thing you do is you start with behind the neck military presses, then you can go to push presses, and then you can go to push jerks. I like that. I like that in my training. That was much better for me. Plus, it was easier on the clavicles, too. Damn. Sore. <laughs> right? Those are the good old days. <clears throat> Ivan? <laughs> so, this is, this is impressive and fun at the same time, right? I think, I think the problem is when you don't ask those questions, when you don't do your homework, I'm appreciative and grateful that you looked up my stuff. Not, not that, for no other reason that it's, it's good to have the conversation because we can talk about something specific, like you said this, did you do that? And that's, that's, and that's as good as general situations like this, but, but what happens is when you get Michael tell you, people tell you the same thing. You go to the NSCA conference or whatever it is, and you're sitting in row 50, and the guy's talking, and you got 20 questions, and you go, ah, whatever. <laughs> and you leave, right? You can't. And then you go try to talk to the guy, and there's 20 deep there, and you're like, ah, I'm going to lunch. So, and, and the problem is those questions that you want to ask are absolutely critical for your growth. Your growth. Maybe not everybody around you, but your growth. And who gives a shit about anybody else's growth but yours, right? You want to make sure you're So that, it's good that, you know, if you've got questions right now, you got to ask them. I was really lucky when I was younger to have a bunch of support around me that, you know, I got surrounded by really great people and, you know, who were just regular guys like me and all of a sudden now they're PhDs and they're, they're doing all kinds of stuff. But, but the, the thing was we were always asking questions like, what, you know, 
what would you do here? Now, granted, 35 years ago, we were started making stuff up too, right? So we had, you know, we, what if we did this? What if we did that? You know, it was that kind of thought process. It's still available today because the good news is you can test it all. Like we couldn't test it all. We were just going off basic exercise physiology. If then, they were all hypotheses for us. Like, you know, if, you know, so DeLorme Watkins says three sets of six is best strength thing. What if we did five? The six was good, we do five. Okay, so if we did five, if six was good, then maybe five is better. Let's try it. You know, I mean, so that's all those formulations occurred then. The good news for all of you now is you have access to tons of data, man, tons of data. And the things that you can test used to only be in the lab. Now you can, now you can put them in your house. Anybody can do it. You know, that's what you should be able to do. Take that opportunity here with Mike and, and, and get to know because what you, you never, in my case, it's not so much about being right about my philosophies or what I'm talking about. It's not about being right. It's that I definitely don't want to be wrong. You know, so that's the worst part. I mean, you can argue about you know my program, your program, but you can't argue the science and you can't argue the results. So I'm writing this thing on instability right now, right? You know, I'll just leave you with that because we've been here for a while. But um, so instability was training on you know bossy balls and Swiss balls and all that stuff, right? I think it's crap. In our profession, it's crap. Yeah. Now for rehab, older people, younger people, out of shape people, it's damn good. And I say that only because I just finished looking at about 60 papers. And, uh, but here's my point. So when I started out, it, this is one of those articles, like I could talk about my individualized training or my clean pool theories, because here's what I did, here's research, and I've done it all, and I've got these numbers, I've got all this, right? But I've not done any instability training, really, because I don't believe in it. Why? It's a common sense, right? I, don't, I didn't have any athletes who train on a ground that moves. The ground doesn't move, except if you're a surfer, right? And surfing's even tougher because the sea is unpredictable. You could never create what happens out there. Never, right? You'd have to surf more. So I, this is one of those articles where I couldn't say, hey, I've been doing this a long time. I think this is crap. Any questions? <laughs> you know what I mean? It wouldn't be very fair. And somebody could say, and I didn't want somebody to say, well, what, did you hear about what so-and-so said? And me say, uh, no. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know, I'm going to make sure that I'm right on this. I'm going to go look it up. And all of a sudden, I get down this rabbit hole, right? It starts to grow. And I end up learning a lot of things. But in the end, it definitely supported my plan that, in fact, you can't use as much weight. There's not as much strength. Nothing beats the ground. Can't, the rate of force development is different, the synchronous firing is different. All of it says that none of us that are training, trained athletes at the higher level should be doing anything on any bossu, balance, foam, rubber, nothing. In fact, I was talking to David Bem yesterday, and if you look up David Bem, he's done the, the, the lion's share of the training on that. Again, which is another great thing, right? At the end of every one of those science papers is an email. These guys want you to call them. What do you think they put that there for? Right? They, nobody likes to talk about research more than researchers. They can't wait for you to call them. I texted him, he called me like in 10 minutes, said, can we talk tomorrow? Sure, let's talk tomorrow. So we talked for about two hours. Anyway, I, I talked to him about, he, he would even suggest that even elite athletes who have 300 pounds on their back to squat, that could be moderately unstable, even though it doesn't look like it. I mean, the bar's not moving and the, you know, it's not connected to anything. There's some instability going on there. So. Um, anyway, my point is that uh, I'm glad I did that because now I could say, hey, look, I read 57 papers. 30 of them were on untrained athletes. 
only about nine of them were on intercollegiate athletes. There was another 10 or so on resistance trained or uh, what they called uh, fit. Okay, so I had to categorize them myself because they weren't categorized. And then I had seven other papers which were reviews, systemic reviews, or meta-analysis. And this is what I saw. And it supported what, what I was saying. But then there is some benefit, but then the physiology got all mixed in, right? So you get to kind of, you know, they say, well, I did it with my freshman kids and it worked for them. Yes, because anything would work for them. But it would, I wouldn't have known that if I didn't get into it and say, okay, I want to make sure that, that somebody doesn't call me up and say, did you hear about so-and-so? I'm like, ah, oh, shit, no, I didn't. So the idea that you did that, that's important. It's important for you, you know, to figure out, to ask that question so now you know. If, if anything, you know where I stand on it. It doesn't mean to change your mind. But, but that's uh, a compliment for you because I did that. You know that you question my thoughts or my philosophy. That's yeah, I, I, and so the, the idea is, what I say is, well, here's my idea. I, I'm, I'm willing to change it, but you got to persuade me. It's not like I've just done this for an hour or 10 years or even 20 years. Like I've got, I've, I know what I'm talking about. Plus, it, it, I've got people that I call, so it's not just all my stuff. So I have my numbers, but I want to know why I got those numbers, right? I want to know why when I did velocity training on my basketball team that peak power came between 72 and 87 and a half percent. Why was that? Everybody says 80. So if I'd have done everybody at 80 just based on the literature, right, which is why the literature is a good guideline, you can't program off of it. If I'd have done that, if I said, oh, we're all doing 80 because that's the most powerful you can do, like I crushed the guy who's at 72 and I didn't do anything for the person at 87. Instead, I did every single person. So now I can say, well, I know that it says that, but like Marco Cardinelli says, it becomes the flaw of averages, not the law of averages. When your average squat is 220 on your team, what are you doing for the person that's 185 or the person that's squatting 300? That's where program design is important. Hell, anybody can take that, right? All right, guys, that's it. Thanks for listening. If you like this, you can rate us. You can share this with your friends. And if you have a question, go to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Anchor, anywhere you can find us. Drop us a DM, and we'll try to answer it when we can.